Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8 is where we'll be this morning. Matthew 9, 1 to 8. Well, there was a, a day that was not that long ago. I actually remember growing up in church when the church was cool. Largely speaking, in the community as a whole, the church was cool. The youth group was cool. Even Well, we thought we were cool. We weren't that really, really that cool. I mean, we were doing hand motions to songs, and that was never cool at all. Um, but there was a day where the community as a whole looked at the church and saw that it had a necessary function in the community. Most people, broadly speaking, knew what the church's function was, and that it was a good thing that it was there. There was even a day, maybe a little bit further back, and I don't think I'm being nostalgic here, a, a day a little bit further back when most people in the community would come. That was a normal thing for you to go to church. And it would be a very abnormal thing for you not to be in church. Now that's not to say that everybody that came was a Christian. I'm not mistaking that. I'm just saying that there was largely a recognition that the church existed in the community, that it was a good thing, and that people would come to it. But now I think we're in a, a somewhat different era, particularly in the South. I think this is new for a lot of us in the Bible Belt. I've only ever grown up in the Bible Belt. And I think for a lot of us, this is a pretty new, where the church has lost its cool in the community as a whole. They're no, we're no longer regarded as a necessary function in the community. Many may not even realize what, what our purpose is. And so then I think there's, to some degree, a sense from many of us that since that era a long time ago to now try to make the church cool again, to sort of bring it back in the mind of the people around us, to, to refresh it in their eyes, to give them some sense of, of coming in. Yes, we, we still have it together. Yes, we're still a cool place to be. This is still where all the cool kids are. In our text this morning, it's going to be reiterated for us in Matthew's gospel why Jesus came, what his purpose really is. And I think if we're to look at it in, through the eyes of the church, through the lens of the church, it gives us a clue as to what the intention of Christ's church really is to be. What are we? Why do we exist in this community? What is our purpose? And perhaps through it we can see the church restored back to its original intention, uh, both in the city of Tuscaloosa and abroad. Let's look at our text here in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. And getting into the boat, into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes, uh, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now we've been going through the book of Matthew Passage by passage, that's a normal process that we go through every Sunday morning. And today brings us to a pretty familiar story, the raising of the paralytic. And one of the downsides of taking a slow approach through a book as long, particularly one as long as Matthew, is that it takes some time. And as you get into a a good distance into the book, we often forget what happened at the very beginning. It was uh, more than a year ago when we started Matthew. So it's difficult sometimes to remember all of the stuff that happened at the beginning. And so we also have added new people along the way who weren't here when we first started Matthew. And so you you obviously wouldn't know where we we came, uh, where we came from. And so I think there are some importance in going back and just remembering some of the really important highlights that took place along the way and in particular ones that are uh, pertain to our passage this morning. And this morning I think there are two things that we need to recall about the chapters that we've gone through so far in Matthew. Two things that are really important for our text this morning. The first is that there was a statement way back in chapter 1 by uh, the angel to Joseph. Now, you remember that Joseph is disheartened because he has learned that his fiancée, Mary, is pregnant and he assumes that it's by someone else. And so what he does, because he is a just man, he resolves to divorce her quietly and not basically raise a big stink or make a public spectacle about it. And so in the midst of his worry, in a dream, an angel appears to him and tells Joseph this in the dream, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Matthew includes this story, not just because it happened. There are lots of stories that took place in Jesus' life, or in Mary and Joseph's life, that he doesn't include. He didn't just tell us this because it happened. He tells us this because it's important for his point in the gospel. It gives us a specific picture as to why Jesus actually came. It's a purpose statement in the gospel. It's one you can underline. We know he's coming back to this because he's told us this story. He's chosen to include this story among the many in his gospel because it's a clear purpose statement for why Jesus has come. For what reason has this Christ child stepped into our world? He has come to save His people from their sins. And so this statement is obviously very important for our text this morning. Because Jesus' mission, saving people from their sins, saving His people from their sins, is being put to the test right here in the text. Does He really have the authority to save His people from their sins? The second thing that we need to recall is the message that Jesus is driving home in the Sermon on the Mount. Now you'll remember the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapters 5 to 7. And Jesus is is introducing us there in the Sermon on the Mount to the kingdom of heaven. And he is laying out what amounts to a law code, if you will, 
for how a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to live. And he demonstrates the level of righteousness that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says at the end of chapter 5, You therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what he describes in the sermon is a righteousness that penetrates the outer layers of one's life all the way down to the inward layers of one's heart. In other words, it's not merely outward conformity to a set of rules, but an inward heart-level difference that determines citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, sure, you don't commit adultery, but do you lust? Sure, you don't murder, but do you get angry with your brothers or your sisters? He drives down to the heart level of righteousness to show us what is really required. What God's righteousness is really like. And then he tells us in 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees being the ones that are personified by those that, are, that demonstrate an outward level of righteousness. So these two elements in the past, in our past study through Matthew, are we need to recall for this passage this morning. The ability of Christ to save His people from their sins is squarely on display in this text that's sitting before us. And because of what we know of His mission, it's really important that the first time that this promise is put to, put to the test. We see it right here in our text. This is the first time that this promise, He came to save His people from their sins, is really put to the test. Can Jesus really save His people from their sins? But also the level of righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees are holding on to, the outward conformity of righteousness, is also put to the test. Because it's not outward conformity that Jesus is after. And what we'll see in the hearts of the Pharisees is an inward hatred of Jesus that begins to manifest itself slowly in this gospel outward. This morning, as we look at our text, I want us to see three points about sin that Matthew is bringing, us, bringing into focus for us. First, our biggest problem is our own sin. Our biggest problem is our own sin. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when, they saw, when, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now Jesus and his disciples have crossed back over the Sea of Galilee and are now in the town of Capernaum. Now, this is most likely the place where Jesus lived. It was his base of operations for he and his disciples. It's referred to as, here in the text, his own city. And so remember, he just left the town of the Gadarenes. He was in Gadara, and the, the people there had rejected Jesus. He had cast out some demons into a herd of pigs. The pigs went off the cliff. The men came. They told the people in the city. The people in the city came. They were afraid of Jesus, and they sent Jesus away. They rejected Jesus because they were terribly afraid of the power that he had demonstrated in their city. And so Jesus and his disciples have obliged their request 
They have gotten in the boat and they've sailed back across the Sea of Galilee back to their own hometown where it seems as though the people in Capernaum are much more willing to accept Jesus' power and authority because they're lining up to have all of their illnesses taken care of. So they're there for him to heal them. So the people bring to him this paralytic laying on a bed. And this is a story that's really familiar to all of us, although Matthew's telling of the story is not the one that's the most familiar to us. In the parallel accounts of Mark and Luke, we know that this paralytic was the one that they brought to Jesus um, that his friends were hauling around. There were four friends. They were, they were carrying him around. And they bring him to the house where Jesus is healing people. And there's lots of crowds that are in the house and they can't get to Jesus. And so these enterprising young men look around for an alternative route and they decide to climb up on top of the roof with no regard for anybody else's property and just gladly destroy the ceiling and lower him down through the roof to, right in front of Jesus. Now, this is sheer comedy in the text. It has to be. These are clearly college students. It doesn't say that in the text, but only college students would be that enterprising and have that much disregard for the rules, all right? They're just suggestions, okay? Further, he's carrying his own bed, so a portable bed. That would be a college student, I would think. <laughs> They're nodding in agreement, so I, t I take it we have the authority uh, over here. Um, Plus, he's prone to leave it behind, so Jesus tells him, take up your bed. Don't leave that thing here. Um, <laughs> as, as humorous as this, as this story is, Matthew cuts to the quick. He doesn't really give us many of those details at all. He only tells us some, of the, uh, some people that brought to him a paralytic. We know those are his friends, but the, the, some people brought him a paralytic who is lying on a bed. And, and, but he does add there that Jesus saw their faith. And so it gives us an indication that Matthew's not totally unaware of the exceptional circumstances for how they got this man in front of Jesus. But he, he just gives us the simple indication Jesus saw their faith. Now, much like the leper that we saw at the very beginning of chapter 8, that he has reckless abandon. He comes before Jesus. Um, these men are desperate to receive this healing from Jesus. But when Jesus turns to the man, he doesn't say, be healed, like he does with the leper. He doesn't reach out and touch him. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, his first response to the man is, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It seems that in almost every story, Jesus moves left when we think he should move right. Or he moves right when we think he's supposed to move left. These guys go to such extraordinary lengths to bring their friend to Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith in him. And when Jesus saw the centurion's faith back in chapter 8, he healed his servant. But this time, he doesn't immediately turn and heal the guy. Instead, he says, your sins are forgiven. Needless to say, that's unexpected in the text. That's not what we would expect to happen now, it's possible that Jesus says that your sins are forgiven because many illnesses are considered to be because of some sort of sin in the man's life. You remember, th there's an assumption that the disciples make in the book of John when they stumble upon a man who is born blind. 
And we see this in John 9, 1 and 2, when it says this, as, they, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, you'll also remember that Job's friends have a similar indication about Job. When he's taken on these illnesses, they assume that Job has sinned in some sort of way. You cannot be a righteous person and suffer like this. It's also not without warrant that someone could suffer physical consequences, physical ailments, because of their sin. Paul warns the church in Corinth. In, in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, let, eat, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So Paul indicates right there that it's not without warrant that someone could be sick as a result of their sin. So there's a decent chance that the group that's there waiting to be healed, or even the people that are just coming to see Jesus do the healing, are thinking that these people have sinned against God in some way. As a result of their sins, God's stricken them with one kind of a disease or another. In this case, this man is, born, is paralyzed. And so if that's what's happening in this scene, then Jesus is making a really strong statement about his identity by turning to this man and saying, your sins are forgiven. But I think there's a bigger statement that's being made by Jesus, and really by Matthew, since he's the one bringing this story to our awareness. This story is here to tell us that sin is our biggest problem. Now, I've said this before, and uh, as it had appeared in the text, but here it becomes patently true, since we're staring at a man that cannot walk. He's paralyzed, lying on a mat, and Jesus' first priority in turning to him is not to heal him, but to tell him that his sins are forgiven. Now, if you were that paralytic, laying on that mat, being brought to Jesus, which of you would think that your most pressing problem was your own sin? Which of us would think it's the sin in our life that's the most problem, that's the most, the, our biggest problem? I don't think any of us. All of us would be inclined to see paralysis as our biggest problem. After all, isn't that why they've come to Jesus? They didn't initially come, it doesn't appear, to have their sins forgiven, but to come to be healed of paralysis and the like. But it underscores what the Bible tells us over and over again is true about ourselves. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that prior to Christ, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Meaning that we were at one time prior to Christ under the wrath of God. Now the past tense in that verse is very comforting. We were by nature children of wrath. It's good news for those that are followers of Jesus Christ that we're no longer children of wrath. But the last part of that sentence is somewhat disturbing, like the rest of mankind. It means that those that are outside of Christ at the present moment are still subject to the wrath of God. 
John says the same thing in John chapter 3. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But listen, if you're in Christ, though the wrath of God has been removed, battling the flesh, battling our sinful nature is still our most pressing problem. It's still the thing in our life that requires the most action to put to death is our sinful tendencies. But see, this is important because our flesh not only leads us into sin, our own sinful desires lead us into sin, but it also encourages us to blame our sin on everything else. My sin is a result of you and you and you and you and that thing over there. Anything but me. When I've overspent and I'm in debt, the problem is not me. The problem is my company doesn't value me enough. They don't pay me a high enough salary. I need to go and find another job. But see, when we understand that sin is our biggest problem, then it leads us to look first at ourselves. Perhaps the problem is me. Perhaps it's my own greed that's led me to this point. Perhaps it's that there's no thing out there that I cannot say no to, that I can't resist spending on. I need companies to keep up with my ever-expanding greedy desires. When I'm having marital issues, if my spouse would just do X, Y, or Z, then I wouldn't respond the way I do. If they wouldn't do that thing, then I I wouldn't react this way. But see, understanding that my sin is my biggest problem would encourage me to first look at myself. Perhaps my anger is out of control. Perhaps I don't understand what I've been forgiven on the cross. Perhaps I don't understand the nature of my offense to God. And that's why I'm lacking such grace and mercy toward my spouse. See, the flesh points the finger elsewhere. But the gospel holds up a mirror. The flesh seeks to preserve my own ego. But the gospel calls me to die to myself. The flesh seeks to shift the blame. But the gospel wants to identify the sin that's in my life so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can put it to death. The gospel says my sin is my biggest problem. But the flesh says your sin is my biggest problem. What are your biggest problems at this moment? Have you considered your own heart in the matter? Have you thought that maybe you are not innocent? When you stand before the Lord on judgment day, whose sins are you going to give an account for? In this scene, Jesus is putting out there before everyone that He came to save us from our biggest problem, and it's our own sin. Second thing that I want you to see in this text is that Jesus is the only source for forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the only source for forgiveness of sin. Look at verse 3. And behold, 
some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. So as soon as, this, uh, as, soon as he says this to this man, um, be healed, or your, your sins are forgiven, he stops and he turns to the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're accusing him of blasphemy. Now, of course, they're not saying this out loud. They're not even saying this to one another, as some have speculated. They're, they're not saying this to one another. They're not saying this out loud. The text says that, points out that Jesus knows their thoughts, and so he asks them why they're thinking these things in their hearts. Now, this is an important thing to notice that's rising in the background of this story in Matthew. Let's not forget this is a, a gospel narrative. And what's rising in the background of this whole story is this first initial confrontation between Jesus and the scribes, or later it'll be the scribes and the Pharisees. You notice the initial challenge is that the scribes are thinking these things inside their hearts. They're charging him with blasphemy, but it's not out loud. It begins inside their hearts. But you'll notice that if you just go down one passage, just to the next passage there in chapter 9, that it's no, no longer silent. The Pharisees then go to Jesus' disciples and they ask him, Why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? The accusation that started in the heart of him being blasphemous is now making its way outside of their heart and to the disciples, to Jesus' inner circle. But it doesn't stay there. In chapter 12, the Pharisees see his disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. And this time they don't ask the disciples. This time they go to Jesus and they ask him, Why do your disciples work on the Sabbath? See, it's at the end of that passage in chapter 12 where they come together and they decide to kill him. It's a warning to us. See, these things begin in the heart. They then slowly start to manifest themselves in the words of the Pharisees and the scribes and then they eventually turn into a concerted effort to put him to death. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he presented the law of the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. He laid out how a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to live. And the law that he uh, presented to us there was a heart-level righteousness, like we talked about. He even challenged, in, in chapter 6, the hypocrites who are basically playing the part of a righteous person. They're stage actors. They're acting like they're a righteous 
person. But the inside, their hearts aren't properly aligned. Inside, what they really desire is for other people to praise them and to tell them how righteous they are. They don't desire righteousness so that they can please God. They really desire to act righteously so that they can appear before their fellow man as righteous people. Now, the role of the hypocrite is going to be played by the scribe and the Pharisee in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. And this is traditionally how it works in anyone's life. It starts with the inward sinful thoughts. The inward desires that have no desire to live righteously in our hearts. Those thoughts might be lust. They might be thoughts of revenge. They might be thoughts of greed. They might be thoughts of all kinds that are sinful, that are left unchecked. And then they eventually work their way out into words. Where the, not only do, does the inward motivations of the heart, are they filthy, but then the words themselves become filthy. We start using ex- extreme language, angry language, speaking to one another in a filthy way. As Jesus will later say, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then they eventually manifest themselves in action. In other words, the sexually perverse don't become so overnight. That's not something that just happens in the blink of an eye. They're first perverse thinkers. They first dabble in things like internet pornography or things that they look at on the TV or things that they dwell on and think about, looks that they give that they don't check. Then what happens is it works its way out into vulgar comments and vulgar jokes with people that they trust before eventually spilling out into all kinds of perverse actions. Killers don't just wake up one day and decide to murder someone. It first starts with angry motivations in the heart, works its way out to words, and then into actions. We need to pay attention to the scribes and Pharisees and watch as their hypocrisy gradually makes its way outside of their heart and into their actions through the course of this story. They should serve as a warning to us. Jesus uses their own wicked thoughts as a test. And he poses this question to him: which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? In the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, the scribes and Pharisees are accusing him of blasphemy in their heart. They're saying in their heart, only God has the authority to forgive sins. So, but Jesus' point is that in promising this man's sins are forgiven, no one knows whether that's actually true or not. No one knows. That's why it's easy. No one knows whether that's true or not. I could say this to you if you came by my office. I could say your sins are forgiven. Well, that's all well and good if it's true, but no one really knows if it's true. No one can check that. It's easy to say. But saying rise and walk is much more difficult because there's an immediate expectation for something to take place here. If I walked up to a paralyzed man and said rise and walk, every last one of us are expecting that person to get up off the bed and and walk if I really have the authority to do that. So there's an immediate check on whether Jesus' words are effective or not. So Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Now this is very important 
Because I promise you that you've always thought of this story as the healing of the paralytic. Have you not? This story, in fact, I bet if you have an, if you have an ESV Bible right now, I bet at the top of this story it says the healing of the paralytic. And probably if you don't have an ESV, you have something else. It probably also says the healing of the paralytic. Now those bold headings are written by some guy for the ESV, some guy in Wheaton, Illinois. Those aren't inspired in any way, okay? So it says the healing of the paralytic. That's what the, they're just titles written by man, okay? Not Holy Spirit inspired. But this story isn't about Jesus healing a paralytic. That's not what it's about. This story is about Jesus forgiving sins. That's what this story is about. So you might say, yes, he does heal the paralytic, but from his sins. The healing of the paralytic, him actually getting up off the mat and, and taking his mat and walking home is all to prove that Jesus has the authority that he claims he has. That's its purpose in this passage. In fact, this fits with the entire theme of the last three healing episodes that we've seen already in chapter 8. And then the first three healing episodes that we saw at the beginning of chapter 8, you'll remember all those are concerned with Jesus actually healing sick people. He heals the leper. He cures the centurion's servant from a distance. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals many who are sick who are coming in. But these last three miracles, this one and the two previous at the end of chapter 8, are all about Jesus dealing with his authority over the supernatural. First he's in the boat and he tells the wind and the sea to calm down and they, they listen and obey him. Supernatural forces of wind are calmed. Then in the next passage, the demons recognize the authority that he has and they flee. And now the forgiveness of sins here in this passage. So Matthew is proving to us something about Jesus' authority. We know that He can heal people. We know that He can heal people even from a distance. We've seen that. But does He have the authority over the spiritual world as well? And so when the paralytic gets up off his mat and walks home, it proves once and for all to everybody who's watching. And Matthew expects it to be proved to us that Jesus indeed does have the authority over the spiritual world, even down to the sins in the human heart. Only Jesus can forgive sins. The last thing that I want you to see here is forgiveness of sin through Christ results in the right worship of God. Forgiveness of sin through Christ results in the right worship of God. Look at verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So it turns out that this verse is pivotal to understanding the whole passage that we've just read. Notice the initial reaction to Jesus' ability to heal is similar to the reaction of the Gadarenes. We talked about a couple weeks ago how the people in Gadara are afraid of Jesus' power. We see that in the other two Gospels clearly pointed out, and we see it implied in Matthew's Gospel, that they're terrified that Jesus has the kind of authority that He has. And so what do they ask Him to do? Leave! Please, get out of here. Be gone from us. The power and authority that you have is, is terrifying. So they ask Him to leave. Here, Matthew tells us that the crowds in Capernaum were also afraid. 
because of the power that Jesus had. The power that was evident that he had. But see, it's a different kind of fear. It's a fear that resulted in worship. Why? Because they finally have a Savior standing before them that can do for them what no one else could ever do, and that is forgive their sins. No other king or prophet that had ever come before in the past had the authority to forgive sins. Now, there might be some that pronounce a forgiveness of sins on the congregation. But note that the authority to forgive the sins doesn't reside in the priest or the king. The authority to forgive the sins resides in God alone. Knowing that you're in the presence of God will create fear in you. But but what's the result of their fear in the midst of Jesus who is God in the flesh? What's the reaction of God's people at the possibility that they can have forgiveness of sin? Worship. It's worship. In Christ, what we have as the church is one who has the authority to forgive us our sins. And it should result in worship and awe. But instead, especially inside the church walls, it usually results in shame and hiding. We sense that our sins are coming to the surface. And what's our first reaction? To close our arms around them so that no one else knows. God forbid anyone know that I'm a sinner. God forbid that anyone know what things that I struggle with. This shouldn't be the case. It's my job, it's our job as the body of Christ to weekly remind ourselves of this truth that we're called back with the express purpose of worshiping God. To worship God in spirit and in truth, not spirit and in pretense. That's not what we're doing here. We're not worshiping God in spirit and in pretense. Coming forward as fake, hypocritical people that want you to believe that everything on the inside of me is completely perfect. That's not true of any one of us in this room. That means that if one of Jesus' purposes was to save His people from their sins, then much like the crowd that we have here in the text, we should be worshiping God because our sins are forgiven. That's precisely the reason we come together is because in Christ we have a Messiah who has come, who has died, and who has given to us forgiveness from God. We shouldn't be ashamed to come clean from sin. In fact, this should be the truest expression of our inclusion in the family of God because if not for the forgiveness that we found in Christ, we would have no reason to come clean of our sin. We would have every reason to keep it hidden. 
But the fact that someone will come clean and say, this is what I'm struggling with, this is where my sin is, these are the ways in which you can help me, the very notion that someone would come forward with that is evidence that they want to be known, not that they want to stay hidden. And the fact that they want to stay known gives evidence to the fact that they're included in the family of God, not excluded from the family of God. When someone comes to us confessing sin, that's not a shameful thing. That's something to be celebrated because God only reveals sin to His own. They found Jesus, the source of forgiveness, and they want to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so the church, restored to its original purpose, is to worship God for the forgiveness that we have in Christ That's our original purpose. Now, I've said before that the church is a representation of the kingdom of heaven on earth. But I don't mean that the church is a representation of the kingdom of heaven on earth because it is perfect. That's not the case. The church is a representation of the kingdom of heaven on earth precisely because how it deals with sin. Because of how it deals with sin. But then the question becomes for us as individuals, are we afraid of being found out? Are we afraid of being found out? Look, I, I, I want to hide my sin. I, wanna, I don't want it to be disclosed. I don't want anyone to know about it. I want to wrap my arms around it, keep it as hidden as possible so that I can maintain this facade that you think that I'm perfect. I got news for you. You've already been found out. You've already been found out. You've been found out by God Himself who's already sent Jesus to the cross. He's already sent Him. He's already identified there on the cross what sins you were accountable for. So He's already identified those. Who exactly are you hiding them from? In fact, what you're doing is you're denying the reason that Jesus came. John tells us in 1 John, you make God to be a liar. Because you're basically saying, oh, that, that's, not, that, that's not sin. That's not what you died for. Are you running from your own sin? In spite of people telling you that's sinful, what you're doing is sinful, are you consistently denying, no, that's not sinful? Your spouse comes to you and she says, look, that's sinful. doesn't have to be a she. It could be a husband could go to the wife too. That's sinful. Are you insistent on your own way? No, that's not sinful. You're mistaken. I'm going to argue my way out of this. I know I do that. No, 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 no. You're mistaken. We can even bring the Bible into the discussion. Are you hiding from your own sin in spite of the fact that people are telling you that is sin? See, you're foregoing worshiping God with a community in spirit and in truth because of your own pride. But then there comes a question that I think each one of us has to wrestle with as we uncover our own sin. How can we know that we've been forgiven? Because there's those feelings as well, right? 
you have that sin that comes up and you confess it, and yet there still remains this persistent thing that just continues to nag you over and over again and just convince you that, no, you're still dirty and worthless, and there's no way that Christ would ever hear your confession ever again because you're just a worthless human being. How can I know that I've been forgiven? I think the Bible points to several ways that we can know. First, you can know it by faith that you've been forgiven. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He tells us right there, you can know it by faith. If you confess, He is faithful and just and will forgive us. So when you confess, you're throwing yourself on the faithfulness and the justice of the Lord to forgive you of your sin. You're trusting in, by faith that He is faithful and just. You can know it by your local church membership. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 to 5, he tells the church at Corinth there about a person that's, that's in the midst of sin. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might, may be saved in the day of the Lord. And what's going on there in 1 Corinthians is a church is coming together and they're saying, no, what you're doing is sinful. And there's no way that you can take on the name of brother or sister in Christ with this kind of sin that remains unrepentant. The church body is responsible as a whole for affirming that in a person or telling a person as a corporate body, no, that is sin. And so, if you exist now in our body as a member of our church, then our church has conferred on you the designation of Christian. You have come forward in church membership and you've said, I am a believer and the church body around you has said, yes, we see a confession of faith. We see fruit in your life. We live with you on a daily basis. You bring your kids over to our house. We spend our Mondays and our Tuesdays sometimes with you. We spend every day throughout the week sometimes with you. We know what your confession is, and we affirm that. We believe that you're a Christian. So it's not the only sense of confirmation that your sins are forgiven, but it is some, surely. Then your worship is also a confirmation. David says in Psalm 51, 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We, can, we convince ourselves even. We receive a, 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 a spirit, a restored spirit of joy in our salvation. Exuberance over the fact that Christ has saved us. This too is a testimony to the fact that we have been forgiven. And last, there is the forgiveness of others. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, there's a radical form of forgiveness that people that have been radically forgiven give to other people. When you have been radically forgiven, when you understand what sin you've committed against God, and then you realize the forgiveness that you have in Christ, it tends to do something to you and your relationship to others. You have a supernatural desire to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to the person sitting next to you. 
whether that be friends, family members, spouse, whomever, you understand that we're all, in fact, works in progress. We're all sinners. And we all need forgiveness. See, hope comes to the heart as you look to Christ who has the authority on earth to forgive sins, who did so on the cross. And we say, yes, He is true. So the question then that is left for us is what do we do with our sin? Where do we take it? Do we leave it hidden? Do we wrap our arms around it? Or do we take it to Jesus, the only one who can do something about it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you doesn't seem to be enough for what you've done for us in Jesus on the cross. Lord, we are eternally grateful. We cannot even begin to give thanks properly for what you have done. Lord, I pray that you would convince us of our own sin first. Reveal to us those things that constantly entangle us. Lord, there's no doubt things that are coming to each one of our minds. Things that just hold us back from being here in worship and worshiping in spirit and in truth and instead worshiping in spirit and in pretense. Lord, we pray that you would convince us first of our sin. but then give us the assurance of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Father, I pray that in that, it would make us merciful people. It would make us kind people. It would make us people that are also willing to forgive others. Lord, transform our community through the testimony of the members of this church. Allow others to see us not as perfect people, not as people that are pretending to be perfect, but people that know where to find forgiveness. Pray that you would do that in and through our congregation, even now. In Jesus' name, amen.